Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, my guest is Paul Ramsey calling in from Canada. I first met Paul in 2013 at Phosphor G. Well, actually, I sat listening to him in awe while he presented, and I still quote from that keynote when trying to explain open source. If anybody is going to be described as a superstar of the OSGO community, it's Paul, although his modesty will mean he's blushing while I gush in sing his praises. He's one of the founders of the PostGIS extension to PostgreSQL. He's an early recipient of the Solcats Award, recognizing his commitment to our community. And he's one of the most thought-provoking writers and speakers on the principles and ecosphere of open source contribution. Paul, it's an absolute massive pleasure to have you here on the GMO podcast. Welcome. Oh, thanks very much, Stephen. It's good to be here. So introduce yourself and tell your listeners a little bit about your journey through Geo. So I am a contributor to the PostGIS Spatial Database and have been since its inception around 2001. My introduction to Geo came as with many people by accident. My first contract out of my graduate degree was to do database analysis, which turned into spatial analysis because that was kind of what the what the customer needed. And that contract turned into a consulting company, which ended up being the place for incubated PostGIS starting in 2000. And I kept on you know, working as a consultant and entrepreneur for another 10 years. But the reality was programming and the development of PostGIS was far more interesting to me than running a company and doing management and writing proposals. So in 2008, I stopped being a consultant and became a full-time programmer again, uh, which led me through a career with uh, various open source and software as a services companies, uh, OpenGeo, which became Boundless, then several years at Cardo. And now I'm working uh, with Crunchy Data, which is Postgres professional support company. As an executive geospatial engineer, I am their PostGIS expert on staff. Wow. What a great career. So... The obvious starting point is going to be PostGIS. It's the most well-known spatial database in the world, probably the most widely used spatial database in the world. And it had its 20th birthday this year. So, yeah. And you were there. You were, really were there at the beginning. You were the beginning of PostGIS. <laughs> I mean, this is a great Great thing. I know, Paul, you sort of downplay this and you say things like, well, we thought people might find it useful. But, you know, I mean, this is now a piece of code that's used by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users around the world. And you wrote the first lines of that code. Just for a moment, take us back to 20 years ago and talk to me about how you got started with this. Because you weren't a database guy. Yeah, no, I, I was. Well, I was a statistician trained and a guy who liked computers so uh, so yeah the business started around you know doing data analysis and working with computers which you know in the in the nature of these things i know there's lots of people in our field who like i'm a geographer or i'm into cartography and inevitably the gravitation of computing sucks them in <laughs> and they're like oh now i'm a really good programmer i used to just be a cartographer so so you learn what you need to need to learn one story i have not told about the origins of postjs have to do with why may why May of 2001 was the uh, the time that Post just you know sprung into the public, and and it's because May 
is two months after April. And April is an important month in British Columbia if you're a, if you're a contractor and consultant because it's the end of the fiscal year. Gotcha. <laughs> if you have any, any uh, familiarity with, with being a consultant, being someone who works under contract for other people, the end of the fiscal year is important because that's when your contract runs out. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you have no money <laughs> and maybe nothing to do until new contracts are written. And, uh, and 2001 was an auspicious year because the government of British Columbia changed that year. So we had this sort of double witching hour as consultants where the, the folks who ordinarily would write us, write us contracts were holding very still to see what the new government would want to do and what their priorities would be. Simultaneous with this administrative thing of running across the fiscal year boundaries, so all of a sudden we had literally no work. But we had done a whole bunch of other work in you know the previous 12, 24 months that involved working with spatial data and the Postgres database and kind of knew that it would be useful in some way if we could deal with the spatial data more explicitly in the database, not as a blob or as a reference to some external file, but as you know actual types that you could index and query and ask questions of. And that was why we started spending effort on developing PostJS. And that happened, you know, over the course of about six weeks. I did not write the uh, the first lines of, of the PostJS code. They were written by uh, my colleague, Dave Blasby, whose name is on the initial announcement. Um, in May of 2001, I sat behind him and said, how's it going? Wow, this is really cool. It goes really fast. I like it a lot. And uh, And yeah, so it was up and running and we decided... You know, around May, that it made sense to to release it as open source. So uh, yeah, we set up a little mailing list on Yahoo Groups. We put an initial announcement. We you know copied that announcement to various other chunks of the open source community, which at the time included things like Usenet news groups, as well as the Map Server users list and the GIS-L discussion list. And uh, amazingly, people started showing up on the list and saying, "Hey, this is this is this is really cool and useful." And that's that was the surprising part. It was not obvious, although there were a few examples of spatial databases extant at the time. It was not obvious that, you know, a spatial database was something which was in desperate, desperate need, but it turns out that it was. And the difficulty in getting your hands on the other ones meant that lots of people came and used ours. And yeah, things have been great since. Absolutely, because I sort of think if I go back to around that time, Oracle had just released Oracle 8, which had the first spatial data mm -hmm. stuff in it. And it was incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult to use and not that performant and not, you know, not with that, yeah. not that many features. So, I mean, you did land at the right time. I just have to go back and say, you said it took about six weeks. This foundational piece of technology which millions of people rely on today and the initial 0 0.01 or 0.1 release took you and your colleagues six weeks that's it just shows how how simple it must have been at that stage relative to the complexity because there must be hundreds of man years in post years now no at this point now yeah it's i mean it's very wide it's very deep it does all sorts of stuff uh, that first release had the uh, spatial type geometry it had a binding to an index had some input output functions to produce well-known text and it had one analytical function and that's it yeah but you know amazingly with that one analytical function people started doing real work yeah almost right away yeah and today you virtually can run a complete gis using sql you don't actually need a gis yeah. client even no 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 you've got it all on the database yeah so how many people are involved in PostGIS today in terms of active committers? Six. I wanted, wanted to check this out, and so I pulled the log up and ran it through. It's got a list of all the committers and then looked at the ones who, uh, who are still committing right now. Right now, it's six. 
So it's still tiny. But amazingly, of that six, of that six, three of them showed up in the first year. Wow. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Three of the six are folks who've been in with around the project since the very beginning. Um, obviously, I'm one of the six. Regina Obey showed up within four months. Uh, she was working for the city of Boston at the time. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the first production users of PostJS and uh, rapidly became a power user and then a contributor. And now is like the heart, the beating heart and soul of the project steering committee. And Sandro Santilli, who has basis of a number of commits, has, uh, has the most. Uh, he was the sole the main maintainer for a number of years after Dave stopped doing it and before I got deep into it. And, uh, and yeah, so he's got like 3,900 commits. Wow. <laughs> and uh, Regina has 3,500 and I've got 2,500. So actually, you're only in third place. I'm probably... De- oh, yeah. I've got yeah. a long ways to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I, need, I need one of them to retire. I'm never going <laughs> to catch up. Everyone keeps, everyone keeps doing stuff. Well, that's fantastic. So what have been the, the highs and the lows on the journey, Paul? It can't... I mean, 20 years, it can't have all been brilliant. There must have been times when you despaired. It's been pretty brilliant, I gotta say, yeah. by and large. It's been okay. Okay. Think about the lows. I mean, uh, it felt like there was a, a lull there in the mid passage. I mentioned that Sandro was uh, the, the main maintainer from about 2003 to 2007, 2006. Uh, for three years, and he worked for us on contract for for those three years out of Rome, and and we did our consulting stuff, and Sandra did most of the day to day of keeping keeping Post just happy and pushing it forward. But he got a really cool contract working on the Ganache video player, and went off and ceased all work on Geospatial for a number of years. And we were really busy doing consulting, and it felt like Post just was kind of in the doldrums; nothing was happening, and uh, and that was that was kind of a low point, and uh, and eventually I. Was, you know, talked with my uh, my fellow uh, co-owners in the consulting company and said, right, you know, we really have to do something about this. So we ended up designating one of the staff as uh, as a part-time uh, maintainer, a fellow named Mark Leslie, who in the end was responsible for the curve support and some of the first cached point polygon uh, performance support, which ended up forming the basis for a whole bunch of other cached performance stuff that we right. added over the years. So that was that was one low point, kind of mm-hmm. you know, early two thousands. And the another low point? point happened just last. Oh, go on. Uh, I got given a low point, which was one of our core contributors and one of the folks who would have been on the list of the PSC and longtime maintainers who was involved again since the early two thousands. Is a fellow named Olivier Cortin. Uh, he did a lot of work on GML on three D support. He organized Paris Code Sprint for us. A few years ago, I have lots of uh, of good memories of sitting with Olivier at various at various events and working on PostJS together. Olivier passed last year, <sighs> and that was the first permanent uh, exit of a member of our of our community. And um, and it's it's kind of weird to think that uh, when we get together at the next one of these events, he won't be there. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the real yeah, down that's point. That's terrible. Um, that he's is been a terrible. Bit, a good friend for. A, for a long time. Yeah. And I'm sitting yeah. here and on my desk is a picture of Milena Libman, who also passed mm-hmm. just a few months ago and is also going to be terribly missed over the years to come. Yeah, it's that's tr- because it's like family. It's just like family has passed. Yeah. It's, it's, it is family. You know, it's not like family. It mm-hmm. is family. And that's terrible. So let's lift it up a little bit, Paul. Give me a high point in the last 20 years. Yeah, a high point like in the first couple of years. Yeah. Uh, it just took off like a rocket. Yeah. Saw people go from poking it to see if it would do what they thought to mm-hmm. actually using it in production. I mean, the first two years, we saw the first like major production use mm-hmm. case. The Institut Geographic National in France compared PostGIS to DB2 Spatial and Oracle Spatial and said, 
you know what, for our production, you know, 150 million object base mapping database with multiple sites that all have to be kept in sync and have to support transactional integrity, we're going to go with Postgres and PostJS. And that was mm. two years after release. So I was just like, holy cow. Mm. That was that was a serious high point. Then recently, a very similar kind of validation. Google Google's BigQuery is mm. very very popular OLAP database, does amazing things. It's very, very fast. They added a half dozen, dozen spatial functions to BigQuery, and they put in a press release saying, hey, BigQuery GIS now allows you to do geospatial analysis in BigQuery. It's going to be great. We're post-gist compatible. <laughs> that was what they said. That was what they said in order to highlight that they were, you know, compatible with the stand industry the industry standard. That's so post-gist is the industry standard to the extent that companies like Google say that they're post-just compatible to prove that they're uh, they're for real. That's certainly a high point. Yeah. So have you got any idea how many people, how many instances there are? There's no way of telling, is there? <laughs> no, no, it's utterly impossible. All we've got, all we've got is that, the fact that, you know, that we're the industry standard. Everyone mm. seems to understand spatial databases around around us. So, you know, it's not just Google, you know, CockroachDB, which is a database startup, mm. added spatial functions and said, hey, our mission is to be post-just compatible. When AWS Redshift released their spatial functions, they said, look, we, uh, we match up with post-just. It's, yeah. That's, that's all we got to go on. That's Every, good enough. That's good enough. I, yeah. I agree with you. So looking forward, you know, you're 20 years behind you. Hopefully yeah. you've got at least another 20 years in front of you working on this database. What are the important trends that you see for spatial databases in the next, say, decade? Yeah, I mean, a decade is impossible to say. Like a decade ago, who knew? Five years? Five years. For spatial databases, I think it's really important to get into distributed computing in a big way. And so, you know, right now, there's two sort of distinct use cases for, well, for databases in general, but so that means spatial databases as well. One is so-called OLAP, online analytical processing, that is to say like analyses. <laughs> so you've got one user, lots of data, they run a big query, they get an answer back. And the data sets just get bigger and bigger and bigger. The queries get more and more and more complex. Um, in order to answer those questions in a few seconds rather than a few minutes, you need some sort of distributed computing environment. In the Postgres world, that kind of already exists in the green plum fork, but it's a fork. They're slowly converging. So sometime in the next couple of releases, they'll probably be converged with core again. And then core is also working on a distributed uh, computing layout. So it's possible to fan out a query over dozens of different instances and get the result back. I think that kind of distributed analysis is going to be a big deal because the data sets get so big. And then the flip is for spatial, and again, and also for databases, OLTP, online transaction processing. So this is where the data is changing all the time and changing real fast. I think we're going to see more and more integration of what has been described in the past as telematics features into the database. So things like you know, live, live geofencing, live routing. Yeah, stuff that uh, that involves you know, floating state into memory and keeping track of that state, and in the database, keeping track of that state relative to transactional context is important, and being able to do the analytical stuff, the geotemporal analytics that goes with telematics. I think those are the two things that are going to be like the most obvious and big. Yeah, you know, I'm pushing ahead on the raster stuff right now, but I don't know if that's necessarily going to be a huge use case. It's just kind of cool, right? Yeah, 
I mean, I was just thinking about Rastra in the database and you sort of wonder whether it's, yeah, yes, you can do it. And yes, there's value in doing it. But is it the best place to be doing it? I'm not sure. It's not a place to store the data. But what's what got me really enthused is the, uh, the ability of the Google library to reach out and access network stored data. So if you start using uh, formats like the cloud-optimized GeoTIFF, like mm. formats that are good for random access over the cloud, then all of a sudden you can say, hey, my database talks to rasters really good, so I can do all the raster vector analytics, but I'm not slaved to storing all the stuff in my database. I think that's the place where it comes together right. and, and rasters become useful in the database. And it's wonderful. You don't have to commit to loading terabytes of rasters into your data database in order to get raster analytics. Cool. So I want to take you back to 2013. Mm-hmm. And back to Nottingham. And I've got a confession to make, which is a couple of people came to me in 2012 and said, we want to bring Phosphagy to the UK in 2013. Would you be the chair of the conference? And mm-hmm. which was very flattering because I had only the most passing connection with the open source community before this happened. I'd been involved in the UK geo community and I'd run conferences. So I came to Phosphor G knowing next to, not, not next to nothing, I'd learned stuff, but I was a new, a new member of the community. And everybody said to me, you've got to go and listen to Paul Ramsey. And when you're conference chair, you don't get to listen to many people speaking, as you know. But That's right. I went to listen to you. And in your talk, you said, and I hope I'm quoting you reasonably accurately, you, you said, FOSS, you get what you pay for, everyone gets what you pay for, and you get what everyone pays for. And that sort of summed up the whole of the economics of Phosphagy in one short sentence, one PowerPoint (laughs) slide or whatever it was. And I've quoted that to people hundreds of times in the last eight years since that conference, Paul. So the question I one do you remember saying that? Yes. Yeah. Good. Well, absolutely. Yeah. It's on the it's on the slide, and and the the inflection is you start off by pointing out that the default reaction to, to open source from folks who have have not heard or, or want to denigrate it is to say, "Ha you get what you pay for." The in, implication being, you pay nothing, therefore, what you're getting is a very little value. Yeah. But no, we're going farther than that. It's not just you get what you pay for. Everyone gets what you pay for, and it's something, and you get what everyone pays for. And it's it's a reciprocal arrangement. And I like to see. I, I know I stole those lines. I, I'm I'm absolutely certain that I stole them. I'm pretty sure I stole them from Eddie Pickle, who was the CEO of uh, of Boundless. Yeah. But I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> Uh, so uh, so I'll, I'll give at least a, a substantial portion of the credit to Eddie for that okay. particular triplet. So there's been a lot of talk about the last six months or so. There seem to be a lot of talk about open source economics and contributor burnout and sustainability and people talking about libraries that are absolutely critical to half of the internet that are maintained by one person or aren't maintained at all. You've heard all that stuff because I know I think you've written about it as well recently. When you look back at that quote now, do you think it's working? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I absolutely do think it's working. Reciprocal arrangements seem to work fine. And as a development model, as a way for people to 
pool resources under to pool resources for common problems. The open source model works very, very, very well. And the the open question though is I mean open source is working so well that it's becoming, you know, the only model for software as intellectual property, uh, the dominant model. And the open question is as it becomes more and more a source of value and and enriches the, the overall world how many how much of those riches find their way back to the community which is incubating them and the answer is the very bare minimum <laughs> and i think that's where the tension comes in it's not so much that there's not enough money uh, the libertarians would say that uh, you know just as a simple <laughs> a simple equality it, it's clear that that enough money is coming back because the the correct the amount of money coming back is always the correct amount of money there's just enough coming to keep the wheels turning and if ever the amount of money gets too low and people find the wheels aren't turning fast enough they'll put more money in until the wheels turn up <laughs> to the minimum rate which they're willing to accept and that's sort that's of what happened with goodall exactly fundraise. it's fine but it does not leave your software necessarily in the in the best state and there is a huge disparity between what you might call the first generation of open source companies along the lines of say Red Hat or Crunchy Data, mm -hmm. who I work for, who's very much modeled on the same you know business model as as Red Hat and the same staffing staffing philosophy, which is to say both companies employ a lot of core open source developers. So they look at the projects which they need to support and they say, well, we're going to need core developers on those projects in order to provide decent support. So, you know, Red Hat employs lots and lots of kernel developers and uh, libc developers and people who work, you know, at the lowest level of systems engineering to make Linux good. And Crunchy supports lots of Postgres developers and in our case, a couple PostGIS developers too, to make sure the Postgres is good and that they can support it when they get support calls. And if you look at like the number of people, just the raw number of people support are employed by those kinds of companies, and compare them to the number of people employed by, say, the cloud companies, who not arguably, but just obviously, by looking at their revenue statements, make orders of magnitude more money by spinning open source. You can see that, like, there's just a huge disparity. And there appears to be, like, some changes in that trend. Like, the cloud companies are hiring more core developers. That seems like a good thing. The cloud companies do seem to be susceptible to reason <laughs> with respect to things like you should, you know, put money into a sponsorship bucket so that this core library, which you depend upon, keeps getting better and doesn't age out and get uh, and get parlous and broken down. But the difference in magnitude of spending is still there and still quite substantial. So I'm not too worried about it because both models are there and there are still lots of people employed by the first generation companies doing good stuff. And there is a shift happening. I think the main concern I have is that the number of companies, the amount of places where money flows through the software as the cloud companies become, you know, the electric company, they consolidate a dominant monopolist, monopolistic position in the marketplace. The amount of places money flows gets smaller. So the amount of places where open source maintainers can get a full-time livelihood working on the software gets fewer. And I don't yet see any of the cloud companies doing things like marketing their support uh, for open source or their hiring of open source maintainers as a value proposition. It's like I don't see people saying, well, we're spinning cloud Redis and we employ the following Redis developers. Therefore, you should use our cloud Redis because we've got the experts on staff. I don't see that kind of a marketing spin yet. When I see that happening, then I'll go, okay, everything's fine. You know, the cloud 
folks are going to compete, not just on how fast they can spin up the systems or how cheap the systems are, but I know on the quality of the people maintaining them for them. If we see that kind of a, a marketing spin, a competition spin, then I think everything will be fine. But uh, to the extent we don't, and they're competing on sort of like enterprise metrics of we have a, you know, we have a million yeah. servers, you know, we never go down, but the people aren't important, then, uh, then, it, then it could get bad. But, but we're in the middle of a transition, so. Yeah. The only thing I'd counter that with, Paul, is if, if one of the big cloud infrastructure or all of the big cloud infrastructure players started recruiting serious numbers of open source developers and contributing to Postgres, to Linux, or one of the favors of mm-hmm. Linux, etc. There was there's always the risk that their sort of dominance in the direction of those products, the in the steering committees, would become pervasive as well. Yeah. And you might then see that might actually be a contributor to to a future fork at some stage because they wanted to take the product in a different direction to optimize it for a virtualized instance rather than at the moment where it can run on bare metal, it can run in all sorts of containers and things like that, just as an example. Yeah, well, that's that's a reasonable thing to worry about. And to the extent that unlike other ecosystems, the cloud providers have within themselves enough resources to literally run whole projects themselves. Mm. It, it becomes a non-trivial threat. They can threaten to fork in ways that uh, that smaller organizations just can't. And we saw that happen with Elasticsearch. Not that I have a great deal of sympathy for Elasticsearch, the company, but, you know, AWS spun up their own fork of Elastic and fully staffed it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. fine, we're doing our own. And yeah, they have the resources to do it in a way that in most communities, no one one participant does. Yeah. So it the danger of people taking their toys, it's its a real danger. Mm. And then it wouldn't be open source anyway. Once they'd forked it, it would sort of almost certainly... Well, it would be open source de jure, but perhaps yeah. not de facto. Yeah. Like it would still be under an open source license, but uh, yeah, they can yeah. they can run it without community contribution if they want to. Yeah. That said, uh, Amazon has chosen to run their fork of Elastic in a much more open way than Elastic, the company, ran their, their copy. So it's, there's no guarantee that it will necessarily be for the worst. Okay. Well, time will tell, I suppose. And we're also seeing Amazon and Facebook, well, and Microsoft, all piling in on OpenStreetMap as well in a similar way. So time mm-hmm. will tell whether uh, you know, there is potential for their contribution to be re- positively received or be the source of further friction as well, I guess. Yeah. So, Paul, whenever yes. we uh, interview some somebody here we ask them if they've got a topic that they're passionate about something that they want to talk about and before we started you told me that you were your sort of side project was working on canadian regional political campaigns in the data and field operations area so Mm -hmm. what is it that you do when you're not writing post (laughs) post gist code yeah, well, it seems like every four years I get involved in a in a campaign now, and a big chunk of that is up being data plumbing. Political campaigns put together their systems every four years, so it means that the technology base is completely revolutionized for each new campaign because you know the world <laughs> changes. 
technology world changes a lot over four years. So it means building a bunch of plumbing to hook together a bunch of disparate systems so you can do unified analysis so you can tell that the person who gave you an online donation maps to this person who's on the voters list and maps to this person who volunteered to work on a campaign. That's been a fun piece of work. And then also to take the information you have about folks and, and try to leverage what you know externally to, to figure out more things. There's been this idea in political campaigning that if you can apply the tools of data science, if you can figure out more things about the folks in your in your voter universe, you can speak to them in a more effective way or at a bare minimum, identify more supporters with less effort so that on election day, you can turn out more of your supporters and hopefully gain a gain a small advantage there. And uh, and it's been fun to do that. And you get to do lots of interesting geospatial and non-geospatial stuff to figure out things about people. One of the most fun things I did, and you wouldn't think it's fun, and it's not it's not really fun. It's only fun <laughs> if you really like databases, is uh, is the party I was working for had a set, because they were, um, parties are allowed to have a list of the... Uh, the voters list. So the elections uh, commission shares the voters list with the party. And our party had kept their copies around and been getting copies since 2001. So we had this uh, longitudinal set of voters lists. So not was like this year's voters list, but every year for the last 15 years. And uh, if you if you do analysis on them, you can do things like figure out tenure of occupancy, like how long people have lived at the same address, which is a totally interesting signal for modeling things about voters, like uh, people who move around a lot are different than people who stay in the same place for 20 years. And you can add that uh, add that variable to your models of, uh, of likelihood to support and, uh, and extract meaningful information from it. But, uh, but it's only something you can derive by looking at this incredibly weird longitudinal database. Right. And in my case, do a whole bunch of fancy pattern matching to match up folks across what turned out to be like four generations of the system, which kept track of the voters list. So overall, does this stuff work? I mean, you know, we all heard about the American elections yeah, guys, and the British, you know, yeah. the British elections, you know, and the, particularly our yeah, Brexit had, but, where, um, the Brexit experience, yeah. the Donald Trump experience, there's yeah. a great deal of, of loose talk about the power of, uh, of data analytics and the ability to change minds and move and move people on the basis of these, uh, of these models. And, and what it came down to, to me is the only way, it, the only way it has an effect is if you can use that data to achieve differential turnout. If you can use that data to literally move more of your supporters to the polls than, than otherwise. And it's not clear that you can in ways that are, that are necessarily going to be meaningful except one year in a hundred. So there's, there's been lots of studies about this. You can only, you can only move people to the polls if you know they're your people. So like in, in British Columbia, there's maybe 20,000 voters in a, in a large riding. You'd, you'd be lucky to identify a quarter of them as known supporters. So to identify only half of your potential pool. You're lucky on the basis of election day contact phoning and knocking and so on to contact maybe 10% of them. And then of that that pool, the number that your contact has actually caused a change in their behavior is yet another swath down that. So you cut as like, how many do I know? How many actually could be able to talk to on E-Day? How many of those people that I talk to on E-Day will actually change their behavior because I talked to them? And you're down to like at best in our case a hundred, and <laughs> twenty thousand, right? Yeah. Uh, so the the race has to be exceedingly close for all this 
field identification and then contact work to actually yield a change in the result of a riding. It's, uh, it's an awful lot of work at very, very fine grain levels. On the data side, you're really just trying to make that process more efficient. So, so yeah, it really felt like, uh, like turd polishing. Um, after a couple cycles through, it's like, you know, I can <laughs> look at how much better the field operation is as a result of my work. And it's somewhat better. But then I look at the overall sort of known efficacy of the field operation and say, I've just killed myself for six weeks and I've maybe moved five votes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you begin to wonder after a while. But you're going to do it again. I will do it again. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and I'm guessing that the political parties, even though they're uncertain whether it works, they're not going to risk yeah. not doing it. Um, you, you can never afford to leave a vote on the table. No. And it, and for all that, I just made that big complaint in, uh, in 2017. The election here in British Columbia was decided by one seat. And that one seat was decided by less than 20 votes. So <laughs> that incredibly difficult wow. uh, campaign that I worked on for many, many months, you know, you got to say, OK, well, that one came with the margin error. We won government because we did all that work and it, it happened. Yeah. In that case, you've got to keep doing it, haven't you? Yeah, and the databases will get bigger and bigger and bigger and the use cases will get more and more niche. But good for you mm -hmm. for doing it. And if you've got spare time, I certainly know of one political party in the United Kingdom that could do with <laughs> a little bit of help. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, Paul, as always, it's been a fantastic pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us about databases, about open source, and about political campaign operations. Thanks very much. Been a pleasure. Oh, I forgot one last thing. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they <laughs> get in touch with you? If you go to cleverelephant.ca, you will find my latest writings, the uh, latest talks I've given, and also all my contact information. Brilliant. So yeah, go to cleverelephant.ca. Thanks a lot for having me on, Stephen. My pleasure. And we'll put that in the show notes. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GMOP event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.